So, uh, as Christians, do you sometimes feel we sort of get unfairly blamed for some of the woes of the world? I mean, how often do you hear people blaming religion, and Christians in particular, for wars? Recently I came across this post about who causes wars, and the vast majority of wars are caused by atheistic communists, those who have believe there is no God. Not to say religion or perversions of it are not responsible for any wars, but it's not the main cause. There's certainly been some terribly evil guys over the course of history. I mean, even in relative recent history, you've got Stalin and Hitler and uh, Pol Pot. And even today, we've got uh, some despots like Kim Jong-un in North Korea and uh, Bashar al-Assad from uh, Syria, just to name a couple. And you, you don't have to be a, uh, a political leader either to be to be, have been evil. I mean, um, yeah, you've got serial killers like Ivan Milat and uh, Ted Bundy and um, Marianne Cotton, all you know, um, killed and destro- destroyed many lives. And the Bible, it. it you know, we've got a lot of good people in the Bible, but there's some pretty bad characters in the Bible. I mean, some are, some are really bad. I mean, who do you reckon is the worst in the Bible? I mean, come on. Any ideas? In your opinion? Any thoughts? No? Pharaoh, yeah. Pharaoh's a good one. We've got, Sorry? Herod, Herod, yeah, I got him on my list. Got Haman, who uh, conspired a plot to wipe out, wipe out the Jews. Got Jezebel, you know you're evil if you've got a World War II missile named after you. Got Cain, the first murderer. And of course, Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Today's reading, though, is from a guy who reckons he is the worst. He is the guy. The Apostle Paul, previously known as Saul, is writing to his protege Timothy in the city of Ephesus. And Timothy, he thinks, is perhaps a little bit reluctant to hang on. He feels like he's a bit incapable, unworthy of the task at hand. So Paul writes to Timothy to reassure him, look, you know, if anyone's unworthy, it's me. You know, I'm the bad guy, and if God can use me, he can use you. So we come to our, our reading from... Uh, we're working through Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 12 to 17. I thank Christ, Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considers me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, 
the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, when Paul is talking about being a blasphemer, he's not just talking about taking the Lord's name in vain. Otherwise, I'm sure we all know lots of people who would be easily qualify as the worst of sinners. And then, sure, he was a persecutor and a violent man, but prison is full of violent men and there's been plenty of persecutors over the years. So why do you reckon Paul, reckon he was the worst of sinners? What did he do? Well, let's take a look at his resume. Galatians 1.3 For you have heard from my former conduct in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. I tried to destroy it. I think that's a pretty good tick in the selection criteria box. Acts 8.3 As for Saul, a.k.a. Paul, He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. That sounds like a lot like Nazi Germany with the Jews, breaking the houses, dragging people off to prison. So Paul felt that his sins were worse because he was responsible for the death, imprisonment and suffering of Christians whom he persecuted before his life was changed by Jesus. But not only that, when Paul was before King Agrippa, in Acts 26.11 we read, what might have been his worst sin? And I punished them, often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He was not just blaspheming himself, he was compelling others to blaspheme Jesus. He was not just destroying their bodies, He sought to destroy their souls as well, to compel them to speak evil of the name which they confess their joy and their hope. He forced them under torture to reject Jesus. The reason he felt he was the worst of sinners, he wasn't just content to kill them. He must damn their souls for eternity. So Paul might quite reasonably have viewed himself as the worst of sinners, And while objectively there may have been a few other candidates throughout history, what he did was effectively religious genocide. Unforgivable. Except he was forgiven. Shown mercy. The grace of our Lord was poured out on him abundantly. (coughs) And if he could be forgiven, such an unforgivable sin... It's an example that anyone can be forgiven and receive receive eternal life through Jesus. Verse 16, But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, if Paul was indeed the worst of sinners, logically none of us is the worst of sinners. And so we could conclude that nothing we have done is as bad as Paul did. And if Paul can have eternal life, however bad we may have been, we can have eternal life too. 
In fact, anyone can. But not everyone does, of course. There's a condition. It says, who would believe in him and receive eternal life? Only those who believe in Jesus and accept his gift of forgiveness will receive eternal life. So what do we mean when we say believe in him? Well, first of all, we need to admit. We need to admit to God that we're a sinner. In order to be able to be forgiven for your sins, you need to acknowledge you've sinned and repent and to make a decision to turn away from doing wrong things doesn't mean you'll never sin again but you make a decision not to sin again you need to believe that Jesus is God's son and accept that God's gift of forgiveness from sin and finally you need to confess your faith in Jesus as your saviour and lord belief's not a passive intellectual thing it's living your life in response to that belief the first step is publicly confessing your faith if you confess with your mouth Jesus is lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.9 Now, if you're not a Christian and you want to receive eternal life, then there'll be an opportunity at the end of the sermon. But as I was preparing this sermon, I figured most people hearing this message would already know the message. I'm largely preaching to the converted. But even if there is just one person here who does not know that message, then it's worth preaching I mean, the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one lost sheep. And Jesus explains, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven for one sinner who repents than over the 99 persons who do not need to repent. If you're that person, <coughs> if you're that person who thinks, oh, I'm not good enough for God, I'll never be forgiven for what I've done. Again, we've seen that example of Paul, the worst of sinners, that demonstrates whatever you've done, however bad you've been, God will forgive you if you let him. As I said, there may be no lost sheep here today. Nonetheless, I'm sure we all know plenty of lost sheep in our daily lives. Maybe amongst those lost sheep, there might even be a few black sheep. Ones so bad, we don't just consider them lost sheep, we consider them a lost cause. In Luke 13, Jesus responds to some people who think that their colleagues are worse sinners than they are. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. They sound like dividobbers to me. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you not. No. Unless you repent you too will all perish. Or of those 18 who died at the Tower of Siloam, when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you, will, you too will perish. So Jesus is referring to people caught up in disasters of the time. And where you know, others implied these people must have been you know, bad sinners because of what happened. That must have been God's judgment on them. By extension, they're implying, well, God judged them and they were bad, but didn't judge us, so maybe, you know, we're all right. Jesus says, no, we're all sinners and we all need to repent of our sins. So who maybe are those in your lives 
that you may have thought of as worse sinners. People you may have prejudged, maybe subconsciously, you know, that they're never going to be saved. Or if something bad happens to them, oh dear, you know, that's God's judgment. They deserved it. Put them into too hard basket for salvation. Paul reminds us that no one has sinned so bad they can't be saved. No one will be denied the grace and love that is Jesus Christ for anyone who believes in him. I mean, as Paul said in verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying. He's saying, here is a trustworthy saying. He's saying, this is very important what I'm about to say. Underline it, highlight it in your Bible. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. That's why Jesus came, to save us from our sin. Yes, he gave us great teaching and performed many fantastic miracles, but God could have used any prophet for that. But only Jesus' death and resurrection could save us from our sins. That's why he came. Any teaching, whether it was from other religions, cults, or even from within the church, if it teaches other than this, it's not from God. In fact, it's a slap in the face to God. He sent your only one, son, one and only son of sacrifice, and we reject it. We're going to twist it around and shape Jesus to fit our narrative. Jesus came to save, save sinners, and logically, the worst sinners are the ones most in need of saving. Or as Jesus put it, it's not the healthy you need, the doctor, but the sick. I've come to call the righteous. Not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So if indeed these people are worse sinners, God is there for them, and so should we. We're not called to judge them, just to love them. So what do you think loving such people looks like? And we're all sinners, we've all seen that God can deal with our sin, even for the worst of us. So what can we do? I mean, it can be simple stuff like showing respect, not speaking badly of other people, even if it's not reciprocated. I mean, there's opportunities to serve. And again, there may be no reciprocation, but we can show God's love. We do need to take care not to condone or encourage or even get caught up in sinful actions. I mean, there can be pressure sometimes, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so, to conform to the ways of the world. Identifying sin and steering clear of it is discernment. That is different from judging people. In the end, it is God who judges both us and them. The only, sins, the only person who sins we need to be concerned with is our own. I mean, if we compare ourselves to God's standards, we are all the worst of sinners. It is sin that separates us from God and eternal life. It doesn't matter how big or small the sin, any sin separates us from God. And while we've maybe been emphasising that no sin is too big for God to, to, to deal with it, on the other hand, the scale is up any thoughts we might have that our sins are too small for God to care. That, you know, in the balance of good and evil, we've sort of, you know, we're not doing too badly. Yet to believe, be in relationship with a perfect God, there cannot be any sin. It's like plugging an electrical device into the PowerPoint. If it's not connected, it's dead. It doesn't make any difference whether you're metres away or a fraction of a millimetre away. If you're not connected, there's no power, and sin, any sin at all, is a barrier. Whether we have big sin or small sin, we're all in the same boat. 
and we've all sinned in some way. I mean, we've probably all done something on the now infamous list of sins Israel Folau quoted from in the Bible, such as lying or adultery. We're all guilty, to some extent, of trying to shape God in our own image rather than let him shape us. And no doubt there's plenty of sins we've done which are not on that list at all. Today's passage we see whatever sins we've done, whatever sins anyone else has done, we can still be made right with God and receive eternal life thanks to the grace given and the love shown by Jesus' sacrifice. There is one condition, to believe in him. So as I said before, I'm just going to have a chance for anyone who perhaps hadn't previously accepted Jesus into their life to do so now. We're going to pray the prayer on the screen. But if you're already a believer, it's also a good opportunity to pray the prayer just to renew your commitment. So if we want to bow our heads. Dear God, I'm sorry for my sins. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Please forgive me. I ask Jesus to come into my life to be my Saviour and Lord. Thank you for loving me and saving me from my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. So if anyone did pray that prayer and they want to, or they've got questions or they weren't ready to pray that prayer, I'm going to be up the front after the service or maybe you're just more comfortable talking to somebody uh, else you know. But nothing can be more important than getting yourself right with God. For our last song. <laughs>